Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. It's just turned four o'clock and it's, it's time for Tuesday Home Time. Jan Bartlett and I'll be here until six o'clock this afternoon. Today, part two of my interview with retired Uniting Church Minister Robert Stringer, who will be briefly talking about Octetti and then moving on to his visit to West Papua. Medical Association for the Prevention of War, are we speaking with the President, Dr Margaret Beavis, about issues concerning the organisation over the past couple of weeks, and I'm pretty sure she'll be talking about children being sent back to the concentration camps. She'll be talking about the proposed nuclear dump in the desert of Australia and the white paper, the defence white paper. Also, we'll be revisiting 9-11-2001 with the former secretary of the MUA, Kevin Bracken. A visit by a warm crime Perpetrator to Melbourne next Monday. You'll hear about that from Kim Bullimore. Dr Tim Anderson talking about his recently published book, The Dirty War on Syria and Prospects for the Future. But first, he's back. They didn't drown Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when big supremo Malcolm Tun of Bull confounded the critics. Before I go on, don't old habits die hard, or perhaps it's just wishful thinking, nostalgia for the certainty of meaningless slogans droned out like a vinyl record with a stuck needle, because as I typed this line, I wrote, big supremo tiny a bit more for... Oops, I thought wrong. Maybe it just means my mind's gone into reverse more than normal. Anyway, a week when big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull, he's the one, confounded the critics by, wait for it, sit down, take a deep breath, by making a decision. Yes, he made one. I have made a decision, he proudly announced. And what? The fawning media subjects asked breathlessly, is your decision, O Master? I have decided. Malcolm stood majestically with the arrogant deportment and confidence of the filthy rich to make a decision. Uh, yes, yes, O Master, but, but what decision? I don't follow. What do you mean? I told you I have made a decision to make a decision. Uh, yes, yes, Big Supremo, but what decision? That is my decision. I've decided to make a decision. As the bemused lackeys shuffled to their feet to report this excitement, Malcolm interrupted. And... He added proudly, there has been a major, major decision. What, what? The lackeys reignited the notebooks and microphones, anxious not to miss a syllable of the great man's decisive indecisiveness or indecisive decisiveness, whatever. The merchants of death have decided the public purse should hand them hundreds of billions of dollars. They handed us a white paper. Oh, yes, yes. What was on the white paper? A blank check. Malcolm said the blank cheque would guarantee true blue Aussie train killers could train kill thousands of bad guys, including evil terrorist wedding parties, which might also indicate some bad gals and kids. 
Non dear little children created in the image of the evil terrorist prophet, unlike our charming, delightful giant mind, think for themselves, great fun to be with, life of the party, cream of true bluewasy youth, brave young men and women in uniform, trained killers, created in the image of the dear baby Jesus. In, in those places all over the world where our very, very, very close friend, the US of the UN of the US of the world, orders us to invade. If the fawning acolytes had asked, how could we afford these billions to make us safe by slaughtering the bad guys as determined by the US of, which thankfully they didn't, Malcolm would have told them we would pay for all this by lowering taxes on people like him and slashing services for people like, well, people like us. After all, as big economic gurus scuttle them more, Lash Sun keeps informing us in his expert analysis, we have a spending problem, not a revenue problem. Uh, so we solve the spending problem by spending billions. Exactly. As well as the flow-on benefits of providing jobs for the workers, jobs, jobs, jobs for the workers in the merchants of death industry. Uh, true Blue jobs. Uh, certainly, some True Blue may benefit uh, by providing support services like... Uh, like unloading the kill, kill, kill stuff from the kill, kill, kill vessels, although we'll need to keep preventing those lucky, lucky beneficiaries from crucifying their caring employers, we may need to march them off the job and replace them with happy, happy workers prepared to do an unfair day's work for an unfair day's pay. Uh, yes, the sorry, uh, protectors of law and order, of uh, freedom, escorting workers off the job and escorting $2 an hour workers onto the job, does that mean that negotiated agreements are now redundant and or illegal? Not in every case, not universally. It must be seen on a case-by-case -case basis. It becomes illegal if $2 an hour happy, happy workers are available, and the true blue Aussie workforce objects to being replaced, makes itself illegal, steps outside the law, shows no respect for norms of society, for the legislative process. And don't forget, those workers could retain their jobs, 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 if they were prepared to match the wages and conditions of those happy, happy workers replacing them. If they don't let their avarice and selfishness get in the way, or be puppets of evil unions bosses and as Gina has proved two dollar a day workers can be happy happy workers our policy is to make workers happy happy uh, these cuts to services to service the merchants of death how will those who rely on those services uh, survive they probably won't, but remember this, whole spending is about killing people, over and above making the merchants of death even more filthy rich. But in this case, and this is a positive, as Scuttle them said just the other day, a positive going to the great compassion of this government, the sick, the poor, the homeless, will die knowing we have made them safe. Naturally, if the workers are squatted off to make way for the happy, happy workers,
Wonder if they'd be so enthusiastic about providing jobs, jobs, jobs for those happy, happy workers if they had to pay the same wages and conditions, which does beg the odd question about how come they don't have to anyway. But anyway, if the displaced escorted off by the law workers swore at or called their replacements scabs, then they would be charged with the most heinous of crimes, showing why we need, as that rabid socialist former big supremo brackets temporary Julia Gallinghart said, a tough cop on the beat to charge those evil workers for serious offences like existing. Charges this week against several evil CFMEU officials, union bosses, and let's not think for one second there is some connection to the government wanting to arm even more strongly the tough cop on the beat. Why the Minister for Coshing the Workers, Michaela Kosh the Workers, couldn't believe anyone would think such a thing. Evil officials were charged with calling scabs scabs, and as the top tough cop on the beat, Nigel Hodge kissed the bosses, said workers prepared to do an unfair day's work for an unfair day's pay, or should that be a more than fair day's work for a more than unfair day's pay, have a right to go to work without being the subject of abuse like being called a scab just because you're a scab. And shock, shock, often an expletive deleted scab. Who ever heard of a building worker swearing? In this case, that too is literally a crime. And we can guarantee that a refined man in a suit like Nigel would never allow an expletive to pass from his sophisticated pallid lips. Well, he knows it's a crime. As a righteous believer in Fairgo, we can assume Nigel will be laying charges, murder, manslaughter, any day now against that caring employer on the site where yet another evil building worker was killed last week. But at least for the government's number one priority to create jobs, 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 threatened by those workers wanting crippling impediments like wages and conditions, there's a breakthrough. Figures this week showed wages growing at the slowest rate in eons, indeed contracting in real terms. And we all know, because those who know about these things and what's good for us, like Malcolm and Scuttle them and those financial experts, wizards dredged before the cameras and microphones by the day, tell us wages are the impediment to jobs. If wages decline, then obviously there'll be a massive boost in employment. But, but, but hang on, wages down, unemployment up. Malcolm, scuttle them. Saul, Shane, Chris, why have low wages led to higher unemployment? In a word, unions. In two words, evil unions. Uh, notice you didn't answer, Malcolm. What do you think? I will decide, I will declare my position before the election. Thank goodness we now have a big Supremo who doesn't sound like a vinyl record with the needle stuck. The insurance industry came out and bemoaned the shrinking real wage. It makes it more difficult to sell insurance to lower socio-demographic customers when they have even less money for us to get our hands on and they become not good risks. Truncated, but they really said that. Mr. Bloated, uh, why don't you start the ball rolling? Set the example by giving your staff a huge wage rise. Mr. Bloated. Mr. Bloated. Oh dear, he's had a turn of some sort.
Finally, speaking of such people, over in the US of, as the gripping, endless election farce rolls on, Donald trampled them, said he just loves the poorly educated, which is understandable because they're his big hope. His big danger is poorly educated doesn't necessarily mean stupid. It can and often does just mean lack of opportunity. But those stupid enough to vote for him will ensure all who lack opportunity will continue to lack opportunity. So lucky, lucky Donald will, as the dear baby Jesus said, the poor will be always with you. We'll always have the poorly educated to love, to make America great again. Perhaps he means still for those for whom it is already great. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr. Kevin Healy. And if you want another hour of Kevin tomorrow, between 9 and 10 for City Limits. If People Powered Radio, an exhibition celebrating 40 years of 3CR. From the 18th of March till the 23rd of April, the exhibition will feature new work by contemporary artists, rare audio, 3CR ephemera, archival posters and photos, live on-site broadcasts and music events. Come along to the opening night, Friday, March 18th from 6pm at Gertrude Contemporary Art Gallery, 200 Gertrude Street, Fitzroy. For more information, visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au. Last week I played the first of a two-part interview with retired Uniting Church Minister Robert Stringer who recently returned from a visit to West Papua. But Robert's life as a minister was, if nothing, wide and varied. Last week we heard of his years in the Solomon Islands before independence, sitting on a road in Nukumba supporting Aboriginal land rights and finally tackling destruction caused by the Octedi mine in Papua New Guinea. We pick up with Robert discussing Octedi. Lives destroyed because of that poison. Yeah, livelihoods. You didn't see a lot of deaths. Fishing was no longer possible because the fish all died. And certainly for the people around Koyunga, the Octedi River, the Fly River, you know, the shingle spreading out over the land and that kind of thing. I mean, we saw the same thing when I went to West Papua. So the gardens would have been destroyed. That would have been their food source. Yeah. What's been the outcome of that to today? It's still working. If there's any profits, it goes to the local indigenous people. They benefit from the trust. In fact, I met a a person in West Papua who was a refugee in that part of the world and grew up in Kuyonga. So, you know, they were benefiting from the mine, but they were also having to live with, you know, the disastrous consequences. But it was more the people further down the river. You know, the river was poisoned the high silt, you know, the very fine stuff coming further down the river. Did you get involved with the Bougainville mine at all? No. The colleague of mine who dealt more with uh, human rights and had done some work on peace processing, helping particularly young people to build relationships between those that supported the mine and those that opposed the mine so that the conflict, which was a civil war, was able to be overcome. What was your first introduction to West Papua and West Papuans? Well, the first introduction was uh, I went to a meeting of Pax Christi and Louise Byrne, 
who is the partner of Jacob Rumbiak, who's the foreign minister for the Federal Republic of West Papua. She talked to Pax Christie and said, we've got these six students who have come down from West Papua. We need somewhere for them to stay. And so we took on one of those students in about 2005. person stayed with you yeah, for... Yeah, lived with us for five years until he was on his feet and back in the community. Did you ever think that you'd get there to West Papua? I suppose I had it on the back of my mind. And so my involvement intensified when the refugees came down in the canoe in 2005. What happened then, I became a sort of pastor to that community because they were all Christians. West Papua is a highly Christian nation amongst the West Papuans. Can you describe how that, that journey that they took? It's an amazing journey. Someone who is the benefactor helped them to buy a canoe and finance the journey in terms of outboard motors and petrol. I met her uh, when I was in West Papua. They slowly collected people who were high on the target list for the Indonesian government. So it started at Jayapura and went right round the main part of the island, down to Milwaukee, and then uh, from there it came straight down to Cape York. So it was quite an epic journey. How many people? 42. That's huge, isn't it? It is huge. One canoe, yeah, one large outrigger canoe with two outboard motors. How come they weren't stopped? The authorities must have seen them. Uh, I don't know. Either that or the, what I call the, the secret police, and that's highly organised there, just weren't aware. They sort of did what I call, they came in underneath the radar and managed to do it without being uh, apprehended. So they travelled at night, obviously? Probably at night, yeah. yes. I know at one stage they were travelling at night with a storm following them, managed to get to shelter. <laughs> and how many days did that take them? Oh, I'm not sure how many, probably about 42 or more. <laughs> it was quite a long time. They formed a Christian fellowship and they wanted someone who would help them to integrate their Christian experience within the Australian context. So I help be part of their service every every so often, once a month, or uh, and uh, I got to know them very well. How did you get to go to West Papua? The refugee who lived with us decided after 12 years that he wanted to go back. He had Australian citizenship. Other refugees had gone back and felt that it was safe to do that. And so uh, he had decided to go back and invited me to go with him. What were your expectations? I didn't know whether I would survive <laughs> in the terms of, you know, I'm 70, nearly 71. We'd be living with local people. It's back in the tropics. It's pretty physically demanding. And I didn't know what the security situation would be like, especially as I was being introduced to, uh, you know, what I call the, the resistance. That's, you know, the people are organised and highly organised. They have what they call a shadow government called the Federal Republic of West Papua. They have a president. They have a prime minister. They have their security people. The security people are ones who monitor the human rights violations. So that's all very highly organised, and Indonesians are well aware of that. I mean, they immediately, it was proclaimed in 2011. The president and you know the main office bearers were immediately put in prison and weren't released till July last year. The security forces know who they are, but it's so highly organised uh, that uh, I don't think they could deal with it all at once. <laughs> but it's there. Does this mainly happen in Jayapura or 
elsewhere as well? No, it, it's in Jayapura. It's most highly organised in Manakwari. It's also in Wamana. So it's in all the major towns. And it certainly has a much higher profile in the mountain areas where you've got the remnants of the OPM. I met people from OPM villages. Well, they called themselves OPM villages. It's there. It's got a highly just cause because the expectation of the Melanesian people was in 1962 when the Dutch relinquished West Papua that they would be given independence. And I saw photographs of the Dutch flag and the West Papuan flag flying together, people being trained in military service, people being trained to take over as part of the government. And then it was handed to the United Nations, who would administer it as a trusteeship for was seven years. But then in 1969, the United Nations, with mainly the connivance of America, decided that you know, there's some good resources there, particularly at Freeport. Why don't we make it part of Indonesia? You know, we've got a, you know, an authoritarian government there. It would be much easier to be able to protect our assets. So it was given to Indonesia rather than becoming an independent nation. And that's a real deep, deep grievance of the indigenous people. And of course, that resource is huge, isn't it? It's the biggest gold and copper mine in the world. And it's done what they did at Octeti, a lot of stuff. I mean, you fly into uh, Timika and you just see this great scree of shingle, kilometre wide, just coming down the mountain. It was a huge mountain, now it's a hole in the ground. That's right. Uh, Well, it was one part of the mountain and then at the end of the meadow they found more than what they Mm. thought was there at the beginning. And so it's still the biggest copper copper and gold mine in the world. Can you talk a bit more about some of the places you went to and the experiences of the people that you spoke with? There was the personal journey, and I've outlined that. That was my friend meeting his fiancée for the first time, and that was a very human story. There was an arranged marriage through church connections. He went there to meet his fiancée. I was there to meet church leaders, so we visited Jairapura. Then went to Manakwari and up to uh, Imbuan, which is a village about 250 kilometres sort of northwest of Manakwari. We were sort of loaded onto a twin cab, four-wheel drive with wide tyres, and I thought, oh, this is a bit grand. But then when you realise that to get to their village, you had to go through 12 rivers with no bridges on and over a mountain pass that had been newly cut, but there was no shingle on it, so... Uh, we were lucky that it was dry conditions and we got in and out. But uh, that was a, a great experience to actually see what would be considered rural, coastal rural West Papuans. And that was a community that was well organised. It was probably the only community where the Indonesianisation had respected the local people and they were involved in this whole process of creating regencies, smaller areas that are self-governing. And it was, from what I could see, was very much in the hands of West Papuans. But in so many other places, it's not in the hands of West Papuans, it's in the hands of the trans-migrants who now outnumber the West Papuans. And when you've got a tra- large transmigration community, you've got loss of land, invasion of people from another culture, 
and with that administrators from that culture who tend to favour their culture rather than the West Papuans, the taking of land, and then a highly militarised presence to guarantee the safety. The government calls it autonomy, but every West Papuan that I spoke soundly condemned it as really an encroachment of Indonesian society overriding and subduing the local population. And again, another source of grievance. And through that process, all the resources going more to the transmigrants and the health and education of the West Papuans is very, very sadly neglected. Did people talk to you much about human rights abuses? Oh, absolutely. Everywhere we went. I met people who'd been shot just for putting up a flag. I met people from uh, one island uh, on the 3rd of December, which is one of the anniversary. They had put up a flag, a West Papuan flag, and the military had come across a group of people who had done that in front of a church. We're having a uh, sort of a feast together, and, and they used machine guns, and they shot four people and there were another seven that were seriously injured. Some of the people, the the real leaders, who they made sure were captured and needed medical attention, they took them to the hospital, but by the time they got to the hospital, they disemboweled them. I mean, that's just absolutely ghastly. That's genocide. Did you speak to the people, the the old OPM people? They'd be more on the eastern side of... I only spoke to them in and around Wamana, in the mountains. They were very remote villages in the highlands, and they had decided it's very important for them to be identified as people who are supporting the indigenous culture and the importance of the indigenous having some control of their own future. Uh, So they talked about the importance of cultural identity, the importance of... uh, being given leadership in their country rather than Indonesian leadership. And so they would raise the flag. Now, often they got away with it in the mountains because the Indonesians don't like serving in the mountains and some of the West Papuans who are part of the military, they would come to an agreement. Look, when I'm around, make sure the flag's not flying. But when I'm not there, well, it's up to you. But just, just for my sake... Make sure it's not flying when I'm around. Yeah, so they come to an agreement like that. The problem on the coast where you had high military presence would be a Jakarta military leadership coming in, no sensitivity to culture, deciding these people need to be taught a lesson and just sending in the troops. You know, let's get rid of these uh, troublemakers because you can get a prison sentence for raising the flag, but you can also get shot. <laughs> I'd imagine the prisons wouldn't be too luxurious either. I didn't talk much about the conditions in prison. I met uh, pastors who had been in prison, one pastor for 10 years with Shana Guzmo and other independence leaders. Another pastor who was Pentecostal pastor who was also the prime minister. I met him. He was recently released. He'd been in prison four times. Very brave, very courageous, very committed to their taking leadership because the church is the main social glue, apart from culture. The church has been there since 1855. So it's got a long history and has really become part of the the culture. Also, the church, wherever it is, provides leadership. It provides pastors and leaders and a structure in villages and congregations and towns and in the city. So, you know, the church 
is very important. I mean, if you compare it, say, to um, Vanuatu, where the British and the French didn't train much in the leaders, when it became independent, the church lost the cream of its leadership from both the uh, Presbyterian church and the Anglican church. They all became politicians because they were the natural leaders who had had some form of leadership training and had a proven ability to be able to lead the people. Well, it's the same in West Papua. So the church is very much tied up with the uh, indigenous movement for some form of self-determination where they are in charge of the development of their country. For that reason, the church leadership is very suspect and is under constant surveillance. In many cases where there's really high profile, they get put in prison. Attempts are to buy off pastors. I heard of pastors being offered quite large sums of salaries if they will stop being an activist. And then if they didn't stop, then they started penalising their children, uh, withdrawing education, you know, you wouldn't get medical help, you know, really penalising them. So there was that state control. And those who really capitulated were given money to build grandiose churches. So there was a sort of buying off of the churches. But then there were the other churches that refused any government aid. And they were... Like in Germany, the confessing church, Bonhoeffer, and the confessing churches. Very interesting to see them. And they were the more evangelical and the Pentecostal churches. And that the mainstream reformed church at the grassroots level was the one that was being brought up. Not at, not so much at the leadership level. The leadership level, they were supporting the Federal Republic and its push to become part of the Melanesian spearhead movement, uh, spearhead group. They had a full-time, more than one full-time human rights worker, so they were the central collecting point for all the human rights abuses, and all that was sent overseas and collated overseas, and a report was issued, the second or third report last year. So the leadership of the church, this is the GKI, the leadership of the church in West Papua was very much trying to be strong and committed, but also being feeling quite threatened. But also the leadership would, when there was a massacre, as the one I outlined, the leadership of the church was there immediately to show solidarity and to give comfort and that with the people who had been most affected by brutal murders. You mentioned the fact that some West Papuans are part of the Indonesian military. Does that cause problems? Not really. They are discreet. They keep relationships with their own people. When we visited Imbuan, one of the relatives was part of that sort of secret police, sort of military complex, said, just be careful when you're there. I won't be around. I can't come and meet you. He was actually a relative because uh, for me to be seen with you would compromise you and me. So, you know, they would deliberately make decisions and, and give information, but respect that and not cause an incident. Were there places you wanted to go but were prevented from going? Well, I wanted to visit some of, you know, to actually see some of the villages in the highlands and around Wamana, but I couldn't do that because when I was there, there was conflict between some of the village people and the the military. And it was in Wamana that I actually saw 
the military coming off commercial airlines in full battle dress with metal helmets, ready to go straight into conflict with the, the local resistance people. Wamana is an isolated place. It's on an old lake bed in the middle of the mountains, very fertile, quite a beautiful place, lovely climate, you know, 25 in the, during the day and 20 overnight. But it's isolated. There's no road in and out. So everything that is bought and sold has to be brought in by plane. So it's a very expensive town to live in. So is it a tourist town? Yes, Wamana would be a place where you go trekking. So, you know, the tourists going in wouldn't know what's happening. You needed to get under the surface and to meet the people most affected to be able to really know the kind of things that I've been talking about. And were there any problems for you while you were there? No, we had to be sensitive to that and we had to be careful where we met people. So we often met at night or we met in villages because there could be repercussions for people who repercussions met with you? for people and also that you didn't talk to strangers you know who you didn't know their pedigree but then i mean i was going with the full support of refugee families who you know opened their homes and the full support of the federal republic and their contacts so they made arrangements plus official relationship between our uniting church and the church in west papua They had told them I was coming and were concerned for my safety, so at least kept that official link. What was the highlight of your time there? I mean, part of the highlight was just seeing a refugee family and seeing him meet his fiancée, seeing him reunited with his family after 12 years. His grandfather was 85 years old and, you know, in pretty good health. Being able to uh, see the uh, a reconciliation between his family and the grandfather's family uh, because of what had happened when he was six years old, that was a very human story and uh, very emotional. That was really quite special. But then the heavier part of it was you know, meeting uh, representatives of the Federal Republic and... OPM people and and just hearing the human rights violations, meeting people who had been shot, who had to be evacuated for medical help and knowing that there were people who couldn't be evacuated because they didn't have the resources. So there were still people with bullets in their heads who can't eat and, you know, will die very quickly because of the wounds they sustained. So hearing that heavy stuff as well. So, you know, it was a very emotional time for me. I often found myself... In tears. And is the military all-encompassing? Is it like an octopus right through the places you went to? They control West Papua? Yeah, they're everywhere. From what I could hear, a fairly extensive network of police uh, in uh, civvies, you know, just being those who supply rides on motorbikes or in minibuses and, you know, just trying to pick up local intelligence plus stories of the more organised capacities meeting known activists and warning them or wanting to interview them. Like I met this wonderful pastor in Jairapura, a real activist uh, lady. She talked about being rung up by the intelligence and uh, they wanted to meet her and uh, do a briefing with her. And she said uh, she would be happy to do that, but that had to be take place in their uh, synod or church office in Jairapura, where everything was open and above board. 
but the secret police wouldn't go along with that. That was you know, one story, plus the prime minister who had recently come out of prison and was you know, really active, the networking in the community, bringing groups together that, you know, of the indigenous people and supporting the, the aims of the federal republic, which at this stage is aiming to try and get some dialogue with the Indonesian government, which is refusing to, like when SBY was there in 2000, 2011, the main church leaders in West Papua went and met with him and raised all the human rights concerns and all the other concerns uh, that I've talked about. There was to be a follow-up meeting, and they were actually called to Jakarta to to that meeting, and it didn't happen. And all the signs there, although uh, the new president says, I want to dialogue, nothing's happening. So, you know, they'd given up on that. But the, the whole idea of becoming part of the Melanesian Spearhead Group, even if they're only observers, is that in that forum in the Pacific, with supportive nations, the Solomons, Papua New Guinea, New Caledonia, Vanuatu, Fiji, because the West, uh, the Federated Republic is there, the Indonesian government has demanded to be there because they're the government of West Papua. They are not Melanesian, so they've been given observer status. But there, at least, is a forum where each delegation, well, one will be able to raise the issues and the other will be confronted with, well, what's your reply if these things are going on? Church leaders talked about being, well, one the leader of the kimchi church talked about the church is like a, a potato growing between two rocks. <laughs> one is the government, the other is the federal republic or the, the resistance, as I call them. But the, the more reflective one was a Pentecostal pastor I met who said, no, the church is uh, in between uh, the government and the people, and the church has to listen to its people because they're nearly all the indigenous people. The church must also speak to power, so it must really confront the government with the atrocities that are taking place. So the church's role. Now, because of that, a lot of the senior church leaders throughout the country are under threat. And they're only protected because they have a fairly high profile overseas, you know, in the Pacific Council of Churches, the World Council of Churches, in their own denominations. They've built relationships with the American government. And uh, just as I was leaving, they were meeting the American ambassador recently. So, you know, they're protected because they have fairly high profiles. But we know from a Capacis report that has been unearthed recently by one of the journalists there that uh, their concern is that church leaders are taking too high a profile in indigenous movements. The future, the near future, what is it? If they had guns, there'd be a war. One of the biggest requests I had was, how can we get weapons? because there's a level of frustration and anger where they would like to take on the military. But that would be crazy. But that's the level of frustration. The future of the Federal Republic and its being part of the Melanesian Spearhead Group, if that is successful and the nations aren't bought off by Indonesian handouts, maybe there's the hope that the situation in West Papua will be brought up in the human rights arena of United Nations and also in the decolonization committee of the United Nations. That's 
a very sore point because the United Nations was part of the handing over of West Papua to the Indonesians with the Americans' connivance. So there's going to be a lot of political trying to stop that process happening. But the justice of their cause goes right to the core of international relationships and the very United Nations itself. There's a hoping that that may be a fruitful venue. And I think the West Papuans are getting more organised locally, and that's a real concern for the Indonesians. So they're cracking down, and you'll hear of more arrests of pastors, and there'll be more bloodshed as people get shot. The situation is going to get worse before it gets better, unless there is a change, a real change, and the Indonesians start overcoming this autonomy process. That's the real threat because the autonomy process is a process of Indonesianization, And that's gathering a pace because, you know, the transmigration has now meant the Indonesian population outnumbers the uh, indigenous population. That means the introduction of mosques everywhere and there is the possible clash of religious cultures. This is also possibly going to be stirred up by... Uh, the jihadists, there was a jihadist in Jayapura when I was there, creating cell groups of both indigenous and other people to ferment unrest. Uh, there was a real threat that they would do something to all the church celebrations over Christmas, for example, and the pastors were living in fear that something might happen. So, you know, those are the, the things that are, are there and could blow up. The brief that I was given by everybody, you must tell the world what is happening to us, the indigenous people of West Papua. That was the brief that I was given everywhere I went by all all of the people I met. Do you believe genocide is occurring in West Papua? There were lots of signs of it. Besides the military atrocities where people are indiscriminately killed or deliberately killed, there were issues of the plight of people living with HIV and AIDS, that they weren't getting adequate treatment. In fact, there were accusations that were shared with me that they felt that that was deliberately introduced by prostitutes from Java. And there were also concerns that the sale of alcohol that was sort of laced it's a bit like our methylated spirits. I don't know all the details, but there were accusations of that, and then there were real concerns, particularly from amongst the women, uh, who talked about family planning, uh, enforced plan- family planning. That uh, women, after they'd had their second baby, were sterilised, and also concern that uh, uh, most of the people who had cesarean births uh, died because of the lack of adequate, you know, follow-up and medical treatment. And plus the whole thing of the marginalisation of people, the lack of health services, the lack of education is, you know, it's a form of genocide, certainly cultural genocide, but it's leading to, you know, physical deaths. So uh, that that's, uh, was certainly talked about uh, in many of the places that I went. Well, there were martyrs, you know, just like Bonhoeffer, who was the leader of the Confessing Church in Germany, and he was uh, arrested and uh, was murdered by the German state before the end of the war. Uh, so there are certain leaders like uh, Thais Eli. He's an academic who was seen as the, the president 
of the emerging republic. Uh, he was deliberately murdered by the military, uh, and his tomb is there at Sintani, not far from the airport. It's an old soccer field, but the soccer field has been converted into a memorial place with his grave there. And there are others who have been, uh, you know, high-profile people who have lost their lives because they're committed to uh, some uh, independence. That's there. And then uh, I didn't hear the word independence at all, but I always heard the, the word Durka Papua, which is uh, freedom for West Papua. And when they talk about freedom, they're talking about a lot of things under that. They're talking about freedom to be the leaders of the country rather than dominated and led by Indonesians. They talk about the freedom that those who have been exiled, i.e. the refugees, and they're not only in Australia, they're in many other parts of the world, that they can come back and play their part in the development of the country. There's the need for the freedom to be educated and to have good health services. You know, So when they're talking about freedom, they're not, talking about independence so much, but the importance of being able to be in control of the destiny of their own country. They even talk sympathetically, like in East Timor, of, okay, the Indonesia is our neighbours, the Indonesians are already here, we'll come to some accommodation with them, but we must be the leaders, not this uh, process of autonomy, which is tightening the control that is aimed at you know, protecting the Indonesian now majority and marginalising the indigenous West Papuans. So, you know, those are very much the issues as well. You've been listening to the second part of an interview with Robert Stringer, who's a retired Uniting Church minister who recently went to West Papua. Certainly needs more publicity about is happening in West Papua. Join a worldwide protest against Israel's continued expansion into Palestine. Join the women in black for a vigil in protest of this occupation. We'll be outside the old GPO, corner of Elizabeth and Burke Streets, from midday to 1pm, Saturday 5th of March. Find us on Facebook, Women in Black Melbourne. Women in Black is a 3CR supporter. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. Next, our monthly focus on issues concerning the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. And I'm speaking with Dr. Margaret Beavis, who is the president Margaret, first, the tentative findings by the South Australian Royal Commission into the nuclear fuel cycle and, I believe, an attempt to link nuclear waste problems to nuclear medicine. 
What are the facts about nuclear medicine? Most countries import their isotopes to use in nuclear medicine. In other words, around the world there's five or six reactors and most countries import their isotopes. Once they're used, and usually they're used for things like bone scans or a specialised form of heart scan, they're not used for much. About 3% of medical imaging, as we call it in Australia, so when a doctor orders a test to look at anything, about 3% use nuclear medicine. Now, when that is used, it actually is radio only for a very short time. So that waste, in the vast majority of cases, uh, disappears very quickly, and usually the waste is, after a few months, just put in the normal rubbish tips. So to claim that we need a nuclear waste dump because of nuclear medicine is actually very misleading. We need a waste dump because we have a reactor. And isotopes are now um, at a stage where in Canada, who's been the world leader in isotope manufacture, so it's, it's complex, but for many years has supplied the, the world's biggest supplier. In 2009, I had an independent review of reactor production and decided that it was not reliable enough because when the reactors break down, there's been, in 2009, 2011, major world shortages, so it's not reliable enough. It's very expensive. It's by far the most expensive way to make them. It leaves you with a whole lot of waste from international use. So, so Canada decided to look down the path of cyclotron manufacturing. Cyclotrons are machines about the size of a four-wheel drive car. And these machines use electricity to take the isotopes. They, they speed up the particles very fast and do this. So what Canada's done is they've shown that it can be done at a commercial scale They've had pilots in three brands of common cyclotrons, so three bog-standard brands of cyclotrons they've used to make radioisotopes. And currently, having shown that they can produce them at commercial scale, they're now getting registration, which means it's going through the United States Food and Drug Administration. You have to show that these isotopes are safe in people, so they're going through testing to get regular testing, and they're hoping to have about 24 of these cyclotrons throughout Canada by 2018 and they're planning to close down the reactor in 2018. So Australia faces a choice about whether we keep having a reactor to make uh, isotopes or not. What's really uh, disappointing is that and the mob that run Lucas Heights, they've decided that since Canada's shutting this reactor, they're going to really ramp up the Australian reactor production, not paying any attention to the review that Canada had. So they have increased in capacity. So what this means is that normally Australia produces about 1% of the world isotopes. They want to increase to 25%, so 25 times the amount we're making now, which will leave us with a whole lot more, enormously more, nuclear waste. And this seems most unlikely, not only in the view of the Canadian review, but also the fact that cheaper, cleaner technology is demonstrably able to work and if we introduce it could happen in the next few years. And also it will leave... We're having real problems finding what we're going to do with the waste we have already. We already have more waste, nuclear waste, than we know what to do with. So why we think ramping up production to give us a whole lot more is uh, very surprising. We really, what we really need is an inquiry into Australia's nuclear waste production. Exactly, and more focus on renewables.
Yes, well, well yes, we seem to be backing the horse. This is old technology and very dirty technology, and it'll leave waste that needs storing for hundreds of thousands of years, so it's, it's foolishness. The trouble is we often seem to be going the wrong way here in Australia. Just an issue to point, pinpoint that is last month's doctors at a Brisbane hospital refused to release a one-year-old girl badly burnt at Nauru until a suitable home was found for her. This started out and continued for a number of days until the child and her parents were moved to community detention and I'm not quite sure whether that child has now been returned to the dreadful conditions at Nauru. But there's two issues here. There's the the medical staff at hospitals and there's also medical staff in these offshore concentration camps. Yes, um, I strongly applaud the Queensland doctors and their stance about not releasing a child into harm. As medical professionals, we have mandatory compulsory reporting of any time we are concerned about child abuse. And to return a baby to the conditions of Nauru would be totally medically really irresponsible and I think they've taken a tremendous step and I think I, I applaud what they've done. I think it's also been useful because it's highlighted to the Australian community that these asylum seekers are people too, that they have little kids and that putting little kids or putting anybody in indefinite detention, so it's not in detention, as you said, concentration camps, imprisoning people for indefinite amounts of time without any sort of charge, they have done nothing wrong, is really a, really a criminal act on the part of the Australian government and I'm sure it'll come back to bite them at some point. Second part of your question about medical staff going to work in Nauru, well, it's been increasingly called on for doctors not to go to Nauru just because that enables Nauru to keep happening and I think that is an incredibly difficult dilemma because leaving people in Nauru without medical care is also problematic but I I actually find that a very difficult issue but I tend to come down on the side not medical people not going just because do not wish to support this extremely damaging of people who've done nothing wrong. Just wondering where they could get medical staff from if Australian staff refused to go. I suspect if they pay money, they'll get the staff. But I think it just, again, highlights that what the guard is doing is unconscionable. The third issue today, Margaret, is the Defence White Paper, and that's disturbed many, many people in the community. We're told that Australia will embark on a a decade-long surge in weaponry and military forces to defend land, sea, skies and space to combat Chinese growing military force but some people many people say that we're spending taxpayers money to support the aims of the the US to control the whole world. The defence white paper shows yet again the priorities of government are not with community well-being. I mean a number of issues. What's Trouble is that as defence white as defence spending is ramping up to become two percent of GDP, they also made such savage cuts to foreign aid that that's going down to two percent of GDP. So we're spending one tenth of our defence budget in foreign aid when we know that foreign aid is really good. Well-directed foreign aid can help stabilise communities. It can provide food and water and education and makes them much more stable, much less likely to break down and become places conflict will thrive. We also cut our diplomatic course, so diplomacy is no longer a priority, and we're of the OECD countries, we have the least number of diplomatic 
postings. So the government isn't at prevention at all. It's not working to try and keep peace. It's more just waiting for it to happen and then spending an enormous amount of money on huge pieces of infrastructure to defend Australia. I think what's really interesting is that this defence white paper has started to catch itself in terms of jobs and employment, which defence white papers don't usually do. It's that they're trying to defend this level of spending because certainly you can also look at Australia's hospital systems, which are suffering because of major cuts, the education system suffering because of major cuts. So to be spending enormous amounts of money on, on this infrastructure seems to be lack any sort of balance in terms of what needs to be prioritised. And, and as I said, prevention of conflict, um, conflict will save lives and a whole lot of money. So I think we can do a whole lot better than this. The situation in Syria, what are your hopes for there? Oh, Syria. Syria is a really complicated problem with so many, from so many sides. I think with Syria, the ultimate solution is going to have to be diplomatic, where the Syrian people are going to have to find a solution now, whether Assad remained in government, but there needs to be a diplomatic solution of the Syrian people so that there is a Syrian presence that can then counter ISIS. You need to have people that understand the Syrian perspectives that can go into battle and then can address the threat that is ISIS. But I think the solution for Syria itself, and the, so sort of there's two wars. There's a civil war in Syria that needs to be solved diplomatically, and then the conflict with ISIS then needs to be addressed by a coherent Syrian approach. But I think it's extremely difficult. I also think there's conflicts happening in Yemen and a number of other places that are sort of not getting a huge amount of coverage, but I think it's an extremely difficult situation. Um, Obama's doing well not to get drawn further into it. I think it's important not to get drawn further into it because these conflicts become intractable and foreign troops on the ground are not what any of the people want. And what will MAP will be focusing on in the next little while? The Defence White Paper has come out. We've put up our, our submission to that Defence White Paper on our website, so if people are interested in looking at our website, there's, there's materials about the Defence White Paper and, and where we think the priorities should be on prevention and diplomatic efforts. We'll be responding to the South Australian Royal Commission, which has come out with the incredible and incredibly disappointing suggestion that we import high-level nuclear waste, and that is a tragedy for the South Australian people, not just now, but for many generations to come. We'll be looking forward, if people wish to join us, on the Palm Sunday March, which will be held in Victoria and Melbourne at the State Library. Um, we'll be a presence there because that's also a call for welcoming of refugees to Peace March and if people would like to join us there we'll be there with a banner. And the date of that is? The date of that is it's the, it's the Sunday before Easter which makes it Sunday the 20th of March So, and it's at the State Library. If you put in Palm Sunday March Melbourne you'll get the time. I don't have the exact time but yes I think that's a good way to express community concern about what's happening with refugees and need for a better emphasis on peace. The other events we have in Melbourne is a branch dinner on the 8th of March at the Last Jar Pub in Queensbury Street in Melbourne, and it starts at 6.30. And then finally, our Anzac Eve event at um, Brunswick Secondary College, which was held on Friday the, Friday the 22nd of April. So there's a lot happening. It's always a good night. <laughs> Indeed. OK, Margaret. Thank you very much, Jan, for having me on.
And that's Dr. Margaret Beavis, who's the president of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. And if you'd like to learn more about MAPW, you could look at their webpage, which is mapw.org.au. And it's coming up to 5 o'clock here on 3CR. You could be listening to this program on your digital radio, 3CR, or if you haven't got that far, the old 3CR, 8.55am. And of course, computers are here. You can listen to 3CR on your computer. Streams for a week, each program, and then changes over to the next one. Or you could sit wherever you like, whenever you like, and listen to it as a podcast. Learn all about how to do those things by going to the webpage, which is 3cr.org.au. Ladies and gentlemen, this panel is now on air. In July 1976, from an old warehouse in High Street, Armadale, 3CR Community Radio hit the airwaves, heralding 40 years of independent, community-owned and controlled radio. This will be the first station owned and operated by a cooperative of community organisations on a Melbourne-wide basis. This is 3CR. As the status quo of old media is challenged, as publications come and go, in a country with the highest concentration of media ownership in the world, 3CR continues to broadcast radical, insightful radio 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We're not talking about land rights, we're talking about sovereignty. That's why it's important for us to be at the 10 Embassy. From the protests against the Franklin River Dam to the 1998 waterfront dispute, from the east-west tunnel picket to the Aboriginal 10 Embassy, the history of 3CR is dynamic and passionate and ongoing. I was born here. I will die here. I am not moving. So as we celebrate 40 years in 2016, we ask you, our volunteers, listeners and supporters, to join in in saying... Happy birthday, 3CR! Oh, no. Freeze, fellas, you're under arrest. What do I do? Um, call a lawyer? Hello, Fitzroy Legal Service. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, well, if you are arrested, you should make a no-comment interview. A no-comment interview? Yeah. Well, how do I do that? You say... No comment! To everything... Yes, except your name and address. Every other question you should answer with no comment. So if he asks me what colour my shoes are, I say no comment. Yes, you say no No comment. comment. To everything? Yes, say no No comment. comment. If you are arrested, exercise your right to contact a lawyer and say no comment. Fitzroy Legal Service proudly supporting 3CR. I know there are many opinions on... 9-11, 2001, heated arguments, especially on talkback radio where people for and against whether it's a conspiracy or not. But let's have just one more look at this today with Kevin Bracken. Next on Tuesday Home Time, we revisit 9-11-2001. Much has been read and said about the official version. Today we hear from the former Secretary of the Victorian branch of the MUA, the Maritime Union of Australia. Well, I think anyone who's looked at the facts and takes a scientific view of it, there's no other conclusion that the um, official story is rubbish. It doesn't stand up to scientific scrutiny. For a start, 
aviation fuel doesn't get hot enough to melt steel. And secondly, no building is ever, that's been on fire has ever collapsed due to fire, and that was the reason why they said it, it, they collapsed. Um, since the construction of high-rise towers, there was one in, in um, Dubai, I think, not long ago, which burned for 20 hours. Yeah, there's been buildings burned down and they leave nothing but the steel frame, but they've still kept intact. And the official story was that the building pancaked. Well, the building's pancaked, but they, if that had been the case, every floor would have been intact. That's what happens when the building's pancaked. But they fell at free-fall speed, and there was no concrete, no concrete anywhere. The whole thing was turned to powder. So it's called a pyroclastic cloud. The only time you have them is in volcanoes or when explosives are used. And you can see what happened. All the concrete was turned to dust. I'll go back. You always need an enemy if you're going to spend billions and billions and billions of dollars on trillions of dollars on defence. You know, when the collapse of the Soviet Union happened, Zygmunt Brzezinski wrote a book, who's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, Clash of Civilization, about how the Muslim world is going to be at war with the West. And I believe that's what's happened. There was a project for a new American century which said, you know, and have a look at all the people who got elected when Bush got in power. They were the authors of that, that report. And it said, you know, you, it's, we need to have a direct military presence in the, in the Middle East between the main centres of population and the, and the um, resources that we need, which is oil. How do we get the population to, to do it? It's very hard, absent some cataclysmic event like a new Pearl Harbour. And what happened on that morning, the official story is that 19 hijackers jumped on those planes and um, and hijacked them with box cutters. But none of those 19 names appear on the passenger manifests of those flights. At the bottom of it, they've got XXXX, but they haven't got their name on there. Look at the reasons. One person was found because his passport was found intact on the uh, street of New York, and that's how they found it. Now, everyone's seen what happened to those planes when they hit the tower it was all disintegrated you know it burned up and yet a, a passport no fire marks on it all fell to the ground and it was found intact and you know, Muhammad Allah has left the uh, training manuals for the how to fly a you know, 757 in his car and if you have a look at it you know he, he caught two planes he had a half hour between planes now if it was put down to such careful planning you would never have a half hour between flights it, it was a second flight he'd caught that day and have a look at the people who were... Some of the people had gone through flight training. One of them was so bad, he, they wouldn't even let him fly a Cessna on his own. And he's supposed to have flown the um, jet, which flew into the um, Pentagon. But pilots will tell you that that plane performed feats that any experienced fighter would have trouble doing. So, like, the smoking gun behind it all is World Trade Center 7, you know. It wasn't hit by a plane at all. It collapsed at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And... The BBC announced five minutes before it collapsed that World Trade Centre 7 has collapsed while the building was still on the left-hand shoulder of the news presenter. And actually, if you hear about before uh, the building collapses, you can hear people doing a countdown. The owner of the building was Larry Silverstein, who'd just taken out leases on the North and South Tower six weeks before 9-11, and he had them insured against acts of terrorism for $3.4 billion dollars. And he was successful in claiming not once but two acts of terrorism because two planes hit, and he received $6.8 billion in money. And also in that too was Frank Lowry, who had some of the um, office space in the World Trade Center. Coincidentally, they were both commandos in the, um, in the Israeli army together. But if you have a look at what happened there, 
the first thing you look at when there's a crime is who benefited from that crime. Nothing's been put in there at all. How do you have a, a crime of the century, nearly 3,000 people murdered, and there's no criminal investigation into it? Not one person has stood in a court of law to answer any charges on September 11. And you know, if that had been carried out, it would have taken two or 300 people to actually plan the whole thing out and their involvement over a period of time. There's been not one person stood before, before a court of law, and the reason for that is the evidence would not stand up in a court of law. What about the, the plane that purportedly went through the Pentagon? Well, it was a, meant to be a 757 that hit, and yet people who were witnesses, some said it was a looked more like a missile. You know, some people said it was a 757. But the hole it left was 16-foot diameter where it went through. It did collapse about 20 minutes after. That wall collapsed about 20 minutes after. And, yeah, the building came in. Of course, it looked a lot bigger than that then. But if you have a look, when it went through, that also punched through four walls of the Pentagon, which were considerably thick. And if you have a look at the fourth wall it punched through, there was a punch-out ring, which is about 10 foot in diameter. Everyone knows that a 757 is made of aluminium, the nose of it's made of aluminium. But the windows either side, where the 757 jet should have been, were intact. They weren't broken at all. And as well as that, I think there are 86 cameras on the um, Pentagon. They could release the film of any of them and stop all this rumour and say, no, here it is hitting. There was also the film from the highway nearby and also film from a motel which was confiscated within a half hour those films have never been released either it'd be quite easy to stop all this if it is hearsay just produce the films and show us what actually hit the pentagon and the only thing they've shown is one film which doesn't show anything that you can't make anything out at all and they've said there's the proof it definitely doesn't show a 757 hitting the building there's all that as well as that there was no wreckage in there there was no bodies the crash in pennsylvania the uh, coroner said after 20 minutes I stopped being a coroner. There was no luggage, there was no bodies, there was not a drop of blood. And how and did the planes get through the air safety barriers? Yeah, well why wasn't there a plane? Because it's standard procedures that they, um, when there's a suspected hijacking that a military plane, they don't go up and shoot it down. The standard procedure is they fly in front of it, they dip their wings either side and they veer off to the left. And if the plane doesn't veer off to the left, after not making radio contact, they know that you know, there's a hijacking or the, you know, the pilot's dead. And what's his name? Stuart Payne, the, the golfer. I think his plane was intercepted 14 minutes after it had, after he'd had a heart attack and died. Planes followed all the way down. If it had landed in a uh, populated area, they're going to shoot the plane down. But that happened. it's happened you know, hundreds of times. It didn't happen this time. And there was a, apparently there was a stand down on that, put that by um, Dick Cheney. Uh, that stopped that procedure from going ahead. It's the most heavily defended airspace on Earth. Why, for an hour and 40 minutes, not one military uh, jet intercepted those? There was a number of um, war games going on at the time, too. And a lot of work has been done into this, and there's been different hearings. The Toronto hearing, I think, is the last one I know of, where a judge from the World Bank sat on there, and there's a lot of questions that haven't been answered. The inquiry into September 11, usually when there's a, a disaster like uh, Pearl Harbor, Within seven days, they'll say we're having an inquiry into it. Didn't announce the inquiry into, until 441 days after it happened. And it was only done because some of the women who were from New Jersey refused to sign the, the um, thing to get money for their husbands because they said we want any, you know, one of these things cleared up. None of those questions were answered in that Keen Hamilton Commission hearing. And even, I think, six of the people who were on that um, hearing have said it was a joke, it was a whitewash from start to finish. George W. Bush and uh, Dick Cheney would only attend it if 
there was no uh, records kept of the, what they said, and they appeared in person, and no records were kept of, of anything that was said on that day. What about accountability? You know, in Australia, you're talking about accountability. How about accountability from the government about what's going on here? It's been used as a pretext to start wars. Right throughout the Middle East, have a look at the whole Middle East now. What makes me laugh is they say, oh, you know, we've got to stop making um, young Muslims uh, radical. Well, stop bombing their countries. That'll be a good start to it. The whole war on terror is a phony war. War is terrorism. When, if those bombs are paid for by the government, it doesn't make any difference. You know, if they put them made up by someone on their own, that's terrorising the population. And look what Donald Rumsfeld sent after September 11. We're going to go to war in 40 to 50 countries, war that will not end in our lifetime. These are all facts. This isn't rubbish. September 11 was what they needed to take our civil liberties away from us. Every phone call, every email in Australia now is kept. Every phone call that everyone makes is kept. This is Big Brother. There's no opposition about it at all because they're protecting us from terrorists. We need to go back. The whole thing is a lie. And so long as we keep going on in a lie, this will end up in a bad thing for the whole for the whole world. But how are we ever going to get the truth? Well, enough people just need to be make a be vocal about it. We've got two of the same two parties that don't give us an you know an alternative to what's going on, which is the corporate vision. And have a look, the whole country's going to rack and ruin. Industries are being destroyed. The only thing that's kept this country going is the price of real estate that, that keeps going up. And everyone thinks, oh, my house is worth so much, but I owe so much to the bank. Well. If, you, if someone decides that your house isn't worth that much, you're still not let off the hook by the bank. The whole thing's been done for financial organisations, you know, which gives them absolute power in this country now. Our country's going down the rack and ruin, like most of the other countries, like the US too. People of the US have been, you know, had their country destroyed by this system that's going out now. The media is part and parcel of it. Politicians and big corporations. And we need to get back. I mean, the corporations got far too much power and what they have got now is absolute power over this country through these ISDS clauses and these free trade agreements. People don't realise even the even the uh, it was on the uh, World Bank has said that the TPP will only increase the Australian GDP by 007 percent by 2030. That's an insignificant amount when you think that now our sovereignty of our country can be overridden by any corporation and will be seen to by a tribunal in the World Bank, one that has no recourse. There is no appeal or anything else. It's a decision that they make. Where's people power? Well, that's what we need to do. We need to get out there and, and start protesting. You know, Oceana Gold's a good example. You know, This is corporate power just used to override, trample people's you know, rights. And you know, there needs to be a massive swing against what's going on now. And that's Kevin Bracken, who's the <coughs> former Secretary of the Maritime Union of Australia, Victorian branch, and you make up your own mind about 9-11. It's 12 minutes past five on 3CR. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to... Fill in the dots, you know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, fill in the... 
3CR Community Radio. You got it right. You've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 855am. We're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976, and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape, and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch, and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers, and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. Next Monday, a welcoming committee will be there to see a man who has retired after concluding 38 years of dedicated service to his country. A man praised for his creativity, determination and bravery. Sounds appropriate, but it won't be the welcoming committee he would have expected, due to the fact that this man is Lieutenant General Benny Grants, and his dedicated service has been with the Israeli Defence Force. Activist Kim Bullimore is part of the welcoming committee. When and where on the 7th? Kim? Yes, so at the moment uh, there has been a protest organised here in Melbourne on at 6.30 on the 7th of March, Monday the 7th of March, outside of the Grand Hyatt Hotel, which is 123 Collins Street in the city. Uh, and the protest is at the annual United Israel Appeal, which is happening because their keynote speaker is uh, former General Benny Gantz. Uh, now, Benny Gantz was the chief of staff of the... Israeli uh, occupation forces. So basically, he's the head honcho. He was the head honcho uh, who controlled the entire Israeli military. So Dance is currently out in Australia to help with fundraising for the UIA. Uh, he was speaking in Sydney, Perth and in Melbourne. Uh, there was a small protest in Sydney the other day. There will be a protest in Western Australia uh, this coming, I think it's Wednesday. Uh, and our protest will be the following Monday. Uh, so Gantz, uh, you know, the reason why we're organising this protest because basically Gantz is a war criminal. As the chief of the Israeli occupation forces, he was responsible for numerous numerous human rights abuses and war crimes against the Palestinian people. But the most notable, I suppose, in some ways, or sadly, was the 50-day assault on Gaza in 2014. So ultimately, Gantz was responsible for what happened in Gaza. And as we know, the situation in that 50 days in Gaza was horrendous. Just to you know, remind people of some of the figures, Israel carried out more than 6,000 airstrikes against you know, a caged population, about 2 million people in Gaza. They fired 14,500 tank shells and 35,000 artillery shells into Gaza and they used well over 5,000 tonnes of munitions to attack Gaza from its ground forces and things like that. You know, and now this resulted in more than 2,200 Palestinians dying uh, during the 50 days. At least 1,500 to 1,600 of those were identified as being civilians. Uh, and this included more than 500 children and at least, you know, 300 women. There was more than 11,500 Palestinians injured, including 3,500 children and 3,500 women. So basically... T- and and just to give some other statistics, 10% of the injured 
during that time have suffered permanent injuries. So then on top of the actual, you know, the, the human costs that happened in Gaza, the massive bombing that took place over those 50 days resulted in the destruction of about 20,000 Palestinian homes um, and resulted in the time about, at the time of the bombing, of the 50-day bombing, more than half a million Palestinians were, were forced to flee their homes to try and seek shelter uh, in places like UN schools and things like that. But even the UN schools were being bombed by Israel. There was a deliberate policy by Israel uh, and the Israeli military at that time to actually target infrastructure. And so it wasn't, you know, supposedly Israel likes to claim uh, repeatedly that they're just targeting, you know, uh, military, uh, like Hamas military spots and things like that. But it was quite clear during the 50-day bombing of Gaza in 2014 that they were targeting houses, they were targeting schools, they were targeting infrastructure like, you know, the Gaza uh, electricity plants, uh, water supplies, various things like that. And that resulted in even more devastation. So Gantz is responsible for all this. You know, and, and by international standards, what happened in Gaza, there were many, many war crimes taking place. So what we want to do is, you know, we want to uh, highlight the fact that, that a war criminal has been allowed to come to Australia and he is actively raising funds for the Israeli government via the United Israel uh, Appeal. Now, the, uh, just to explain who the United Israel Appeal is, the United Israel Appeal has been around in various different forms since the 1920s, since before uh, the establishment of the Israeli state prior to the Nakba, uh, which happened in 1948, which saw the destruction of Palestinian society and more than a million Palestinians, Palestinians ethnically cleansed from their homes and 500 villages. The, the Zionist funds that were set up then were basically used to facilitate Zionist immigration to Palestine. You know, the construction of colonies, the, the acquisition of land and things like that. After the establishment of Israel in 1948, in the, in the mid-1950s, I think it was, the UIA became the official international fundraising arm of the Israeli state. They still continue to raise funds internationally to aid uh, the Israeli state and to aid the continued ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. Yes, of course, it's not just Gaza, is it? It's the occupied West Bank where human rights abuses are happening every day. That's exactly right. You know, I mean, obviously, we know that Gaza is still under siege. And, you know, in the blockade, the illegal blockade that's been going has been going there since 2006. So it's 10 years since Israel has imposed this illegal blockade in Gaza, and it's not ending anytime soon by the looks of it. Uh, but in the West Bank, as you said, we have the ongoing ethnic cleansing of Palestinians in the West Bank. There's continuing growth of settlement, settlement building, which is illegal under international national law, this continues to happen. And during Gantz's tenure as the head of the uh, Israeli Occupation Forces from 2011 to 2015, he was responsible also for many of the Israeli, well, all of the Israeli military actions that took place in the occupied West Bank, including, you know, at the same time in the lead up to the um, the 50 days that they bombed Gaza, there was uh, like, a, I think it was two weeks, I can't remember the exact time frame 
there was two weeks where, you know, there was terrorisation of Palestinian communities and raids on towns and that uh, during that lead up, because this was that period when there had been the kidnapping of the three Israeli settlers. As part of that, um, there, the Israeli military's attempt to find the settlers and to find who had taken them, they actually carried out collective punishment of Palestinian communities, Palestinian villages, and also raids on university and various things like that. Now, again, that is all illegal under international law. Collective punishment is illegal. But under Gantz's leadership, this all took place. Obviously, the, as I said, the most notable thing that happened under Gantz, well, not the most notable, but probably the most horrific thing that happened was the 50-day bombing of Gaza. But he was also responsible. There was another uh, in 2012 under what was known as uh, Operation Pillar of Cloud was also another 11-day bombing of Gaza, which saw uh, 180 or so Palestinians killed during that period, including many children. So the fact is, is... Israel is carrying out a brutal military occupation, not in only the occupied West Bank, but in occupied Jerusalem. And it continues to carry out a military occupation of Gaza. Yes, the military is not always constantly inside Gaza, but it controls the borders of Gaza. Anytime anybody tries to go into any areas near the border of Gaza, they're fired on by the Israeli military. The Israeli Navy constantly fires uh, shells from the water into Gaza. They constantly attack Palestinian fishermen who are trying to just feed their families and fish the waters on the, the shores of Gaza. And so this is a constant abuse of Palestinians that does not stop. Gantz is very proud of his history, he's very proud of the role that he's played and so we think it's very important that we actually say no, this is not acceptable um, and that we want to highlight the fact that he is a war criminal but not just that he personally is a war criminal but the fact that Israel has carried out war crimes. You know, you know Gantz isn't the head of the Israeli military anymore but Israel will continue to carry out war crimes and continue to carry out collective punishment and continue to carry out the occupation and the siege of Gaza and to kill Palestinians day in and day out. We want to be able to say we oppose what the Israeli state is doing, we oppose what the Israeli military is doing and that we want people to understand that currently the occupation and the siege of Gaza continues and these human rights abuses continue. Do the powers that be really think that they can bring men like this to Australia and not expect demonstrations? Look, the thing is that the Australian government is complicit, whether it be under the Labor Party or whether it be under the Liberal Party. The Australian government is complicit. Australia has been a very close ally of Israel for decades and decades. And, you know, we've seen it, you know, during the various bombings of Gaza, for example, we had Julia Gillard condoning what Israel was doing. We had John Howard condoning what Israel was doing. You know, under the Abbott leadership, Chris Pine went to Israel several times. Uh, and I think he actually was there when uh, Israel was bombing, when Gantz was bombing Gaza for the 50 days. And they supported it. So uh, Australia is complicit in 
what Israel is doing. It supports the Israeli state unequivocally. This is why important, it's important for us to oppose Australia's support for uh, Israel as well, because, you know, and this is why we have the Palestine Solidarity Groups and uh, have repeatedly called for uh, Australia to break ties with Israel economically, politically and military. Of course, they think it's perfectly legitimate for somebody like Gantz to come to Australia and to raise funds for the Israeli state and to raise funds for the continued ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. Fantastic. Thanks, Jan. Okay, bye-bye. See you on Monday. And that's the Hyatt Hotel in Collins Street on Monday, next Monday. can't remember the time now, 5, 5.30. I'm going to be there by 5.30. The Hyatt Hotel up the top end of Collins Street in the city. It's coming up to 26 minutes past 5 o'clock. And in a moment we'll be hearing from Dr Tim Anderson about his new book, The Dirty War on Syria. Ladies and gentlemen, this panel is now on air. In July 1976, from an old warehouse in High Street, Armadale, 3CR Community Radio hit the airwaves, heralding 40 years of independent, community-owned and controlled radio. This will be the first station owned and operated by a cooperative of community organisations on a Melbourne-wide basis. This is 3CR. As the status quo of old media is challenged, as publications come and go, in a country with the highest concentration of media ownership in the world, 3CR continues to broadcast radical, insightful radio 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We're not talking about land rights, we're talking about sovereignty. That's why it's important for us to be at the 10 Embassy. From the protests against the Franklin River Dam to the 1998 waterfront dispute, from the east-west tunnel picket to the Aboriginal Ten Embassy, the history of 3CR is dynamic and passionate and ongoing. I was born here. I will die here. I am not moving. So as we celebrate 40 years in 2016, we ask you, our volunteers, listeners and supporters, to join in in saying... Happy birthday, 3CR! Join a worldwide protest against Israel's continued expansion into Palestine. Join the women in black for a vigil in protest of this occupation. We'll be outside the old GPO, corner of Elizabeth and Burke Streets, from midday to 1pm, Saturday 5th of March. Find us on Facebook, Women in Black Melbourne. Women in Black is a 3CR supporter. Words mean peace. 3CR are selling kefir, Palestinian starves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. In January, author and senior lecturer in political economy at the University of Sydney, Dr. Tim Anderson's latest book was launched, The Dirty War on Syria, Washington, Regime Change and Resistance. 
Tim, they've been very positive reviews. I'll just read a couple. Professor James Petrus has called it a text of essential reading for all peace and justice activists. Stephen Lendman, author and researcher, said, There's nothing civil about the war in Syria, raped by US imperialism, partnering with rogue allies. Yeah, and I'm pleased with the fact that there's a lot of international interest and there's some translations into other languages going on, which is encouraging. I know we've talked about the conflict in Syria over the past five years many times, but today I'd like to talk about, I think, what would be the the essence of your book, which is the level of disinformation and the connivance of the of the media in that. So can we st- talk about that first and then talk about hypocrisy? And I'm quite sure that the two are connected. Wars in our living memory have always involved propaganda. But what really surprised me, shocked me, and I remember the Vietnam War and the lies that were told there. But what shocked me about the war on Syria and the war on Libya, or say the dirty wars through proxy armies in recent years, is that the disinformation has been so monolithic, considering that we have access to other sources of information on the internet, particularly today, and to some extent radio. The single story about what was going on in those wars, there were hardly any gaps at all. And I, as probably the academic in Australia who's written more about the, the war on Syria than anyone else and published more, have really been completely black banned by the corporate media on this. So there's been an extraordinary level of adopting the government line on a war and not allowing any type of dissenting view or information that conflicts. The information is there. Really, the book is put together by that information, mostly in English, to some extent in other languages, but mostly in English, out there. But the overall narrative has never varied, basically, that there was this humanitarian intervention or alternatively a a war on terror groups that were threatening the Western countries, you know. Those deep lies about the, the war on Syria have been incredibly persistent and they've had, uh, and it's been a, a great success really in terms of a propaganda war and I haven't seen that extent of misinformation in previous wars. Talk about your sources of information. Well, it was quite difficult at first because I was really had no special information about Syria back in 2011, but I was very suspicious about how the violence began back there. So I started looking for sources, and I published along the way on social media, I published some list of sources I was finding, but there wasn't any obvious sources, single single sources. Any researcher uses multiple sources, of course. You you always look for corroboration and so on, but it wasn't a, a question, as a lot of people think, of, you know, switching from one media to another, because in Western terms, there really wasn't any that had independent sources of information. So I started to glean it from a range of different sources and, uh, of course, from Syrian media and from Iranian media and Russian media and Latin American media. To that extent, we're lucky we've got those other countries that aren't in the orbit of the network of news sources that the Australian channels share with North America and with Britain, for example, in the English-speaking world. There have been some international sources. Those were effectively banned. Really, people were saying to me and saying more generally, oh, you can't believe that. It's the the government-controlled media in Syria or it's the government-controlled media in Russia or the government-controlled media in Iran. But, of course, they were all going to the government-controlled media in Britain and the US and Australia. In between that, there were other independent sources, and I put a list of these in the back of my book for people to refer to, to look at. Uh, on the one hand, state media, of course, that's important because typically they're bigger than the um, 
the independent smaller NGO media, but then also you've got um, smaller independent sources, including in Syria itself. You know, there are non-government sources in, in Syria itself which are not aligned with the al-Qaeda groups. There are, of course, a lot of sources aligned with the al-Qaeda groups. The Islamist Muslim Brotherhood Network, more or less, has also had a, a tremendous effort, uh, to some extent successful, because their line was effectively adopted by the Western media. To give you one example, and this is the root of one of the chapters in my book, there's a, one man in London, in England, in Coventry, who lives in a in little apartment in Coventry, uh, Rami Abdul Rahman. He calls himself the Syrian Observatory on Human Rights. Now, he's a Muslim Brotherhood type. He flies the flag of the so-called pre-Syrian army on his website. Western news sources have used him repeatedly for the last five years as a source of data for casualties, for example. So he would just say, the regime has killed so many children today, so many children tomorrow, and so on. And it would be repeated, uncontradicted, in the Western media. Typically, they might come to the point of saying at paragraph 10 in their story, the regime denies these accusations or something like that. But effectively, they used one man who, not because the Western media loved the Muslim Brotherhood ideology or Al-Qaeda ideology, but because it suited them, it suited their narrative to say that the government was doing nothing other than killing civilians and the poor rebels were, you know, rebelling against a, a dictatorship. It was quite extraordinary how, as I said, monolithic the media was, has been on this war. To some extent that's changed with the participation of Russia, the stronger participation of Russia, let's say, in the war since September the 30th last year. That has changed because Russia itself has its own media and has able to, been able to respond very rapidly to when the narrative shifted from the Syrian army killing civilians to the Russian army bombing civilians, the Russians were able to respond and say, where was this hospital we were supposed to have hit? Here's a picture of that hospital. You know, which one are you talking about? So the Russians had a much stronger voice in the international media than the Syrians did. So things changed a bit. And I think the exposure of evidence of Turkey, for example, collaborating with ISIS and so on has shattered some of, those, some of that narrative and challenged some of it but you still have i was looking for example the other day at in relation to the refugee story if you do a search on the refugee story of syrian refugees you will see most of the western media is saying these syrians are fleeing the assad regime rather than fleeing isis or the terrorist groups well that's simply false if you've if you've studied the conflict but because most of the internally displaced people including the families of the jihadists will go and seek refuge with the army in syria but if you look at the Western media, the Western media is saying the refugees are fleeing the Syrian government or the Syrian army. Looking to the future, what's going to happen now to the US plans to reshape the Middle East? Well, they're being seriously dismantled by the big coalition that Syria's put together. Syria had the, um, the support of, um, as is well known, Hezbollah in Lebanon, not because they share any idea of a religious state. Same with Iran. And importantly, Iraq has significant militia in Syria now too. So there's a really a very strong alliance that Syria has put together with Iran, which is the strongest country in the region, Iraq, Syria, and large parts of Lebanon, with the Russian Air Force. That's a tremendous... So that's really the strongest army, ground army, in the whole region now, and with the support of the Russian Air Force. And that's why it's making such strong inroads into these uh, armed groups in Syria, even though they have tremendous logistical and direct support from several NATO countries, 
and the neighbours, Saudi Arabia, Qatar and, and Turkey and uh, Israel to an extent too. But that army that's been put together by Syria is, is cutting through that at the moment. And so the issue is really, and this is a dangerous time, because if you looked at the situations where the US was losing a war in the past, it doesn't like it, it doesn't know how to lose it can do unpredictable sorts of things, but I don't really think there's the stomach for escalation of the war in Washington. There haven't been signs of that. The question is how they're going to get out of it and try and save face and pretend that they're still saving the world from terrorism while they dismantle the terrorist groups that they've created. That's really the dilemma. How, how the Obama administration, or the one that follows, gets out of that tree that they've, they've put themselves into, more or less. But the wider implications you mentioned there are important because look what else is happening. The grip that Washington has on Baghdad is now seriously in question because Iraq now has a very strong relationship with Iran, which was precisely what Washington tried to stop when it created the Islamic State in Iraq back in 2006 and then later on ISIS or ISIL in relation to Syria with the Saudis agency mainly to try and stop an alliance between Iraq and Iran. That is long gone now. There is a very strong cooperative relationship between Iran and Iraq, and that includes Syria now too. So the idea of trying to isolate, fragment, they're still talking about trying to dismember Syria and having a... And there's probably the main danger that, that the intervention of Turkey and the Saudis in the eastern part of Syria probably still has this objective of trying to carve out a little caliphate in the east of Syria. We now know that US intelligence spoke of this potential caliphate in the eastern desert of Syria, which US intelligence said, quote, it was exactly, unquote, what the US and its partners wanted to, to weaken the government in Damascus, basically. That's the danger at the moment, that there's still an attempt to dismember Syria, but uh, in the face of that very strong alliance I mentioned that between Syria, Iran, Russia and including Iraq and Hezbollah. What about the impact on Israel and particularly the Occupy Golan Heights? Yes, well, Israel's played a, a covert role in this war because every state in the region hates them or, or claims that they hate them. Uh, in practice, there's more cooperation between Saudi Arabia and Israel these days. The two main sources of aggravation in the region, really, for this sectarianism, Israel and Saudi Arabia. But uh, Israel from about 2013 became more open about supporting the armed groups and any sort of armed group. It was quite clear that they weren't distinguishing between ISIS and al-Nusra and the Free Syrian Army or any of those groups. They were supporting all of them to try and dismember Syria, basically, because, of course, if there is a Middle East which is dismembered on sectarian grounds, if you've got a, Kurd a Kurdistan and you've got a, a Sunni state and a Shia state and a Druze protectorate or something like that, then a Jewish state looks much more normal in that sort of landscape, really. But what's been happening on the other side, on, on the side of Arab nationalism, has been that attempts to consolidate those states and create some sort of regional unity there, which has you know, had a chequered history o over time. But there's a very strong commitment now to maintain the unity of Syria, which is the most pluralist of all of the states in the region. And so Israel, in a sense, has had something of a holiday, holiday in the last few years because it's what been able to watch Arab and Muslim people killing each other. Palestine has been weak because they've been divided amongst themselves and also sections of, significant sections of the Islamist side of the Palestinians have 
sided with the Islamists in Syria, and so that created a great deal of conflict. Now I think you'll find that most of the Palestinian militia are trying to rebuild their relationships with Hezbollah and Iran, who, after all, were the main, and Damascus, which were all the main suppliers of weapons to the Palestinian resistance. So Israel's had a break from a unified Palestinian resistance in that sense too. But Israel fears the rise of Iran in the region and they fear the strong relationship between those states for precisely the same reasons that the Saudis and, and the US fear it really, that then they'll have a much stronger enemy effectively. In the Golan Heights, Israel has put up this claim, if you like, something of an ambit claim to try and pretend to be the protector of the Druze people because Druze Syrians are the main Syrians that were cut off in that little enclave that uh, that Israel excised against international law many decades ago. And if Syria were to be dismembered, uh, Israel has kept its eye on trying to annex further parts of southern Syria. Suwaida, which is the largest part of the, the Druze um, communities in Syria, for example. You touched on a moment ago Turkey. What about Erdogan's ambitions his country's in a bit of a mess. He's got a, just about a police state there. Yes, that's right. The ambitions to be a caliph over you know, a new a neo-Ottoman empire, which based on a Muslim Brotherhood sort of network, is collapsing, even though Erdogan did manage to establish a, uh, a working coalition with Qatar and Saudi Arabia using their resources. Um, in, in recent days, it's quite open that Erdogan is fighting Kurdish-Arab coalition in the the northeast of Syria, which has been taking back territory from ISIS. Just recently, Turkish artillery was bombarding a town which the really a Kurdish-led coalition called the Syrian Democratic Forces took back territory from ISIS and the Turkish artillery uh, attacked them. So the pretense that Turkey was part of some coalition fighting ISIS is transparently thin now, and I think that's been exposed quite widely precisely because of the Russian conflict with Turkey, which hasn't escalated up now because the Russians at least have kept a cool head about that. But there's a danger there that, that Turkey and Saudi Arabia might run some provocation. But there, the, the problem is they are losing and they know that they're losing and they're trying to find some way out of that situation. So they were threatening in ground invasions and so on. It seems like that's not going to happen, but there is still serious conflict going on the border. Turkey is still sending in hundreds of foreign-trained mercenaries into Syria to try and make sure that its proxy armies keep parts of Aleppo and parts of northeastern Syria. That's where the the real confrontation is still going on because the Syrian army, the Syrian coalition is clearly cleaning up the populated areas of western Syria. What about the ambitions of the Kurdish people? The Kurds have different positions. The Kurds in Iraq, or the Kurdish leadership, let's say, in Iraq, has this strange sort of alliance with Turkey, of all countries, because, of course, the biggest Kurdish population is in Turkey. But there's some sort of agreement there because they are the cutting edge, more or less, of trying to dismember or weaken Baghdad in Iraq because Washington's plan B for Iraq always was if they can't have a compliant regime in Baghdad, they want to balkanise the country. And so a lot of this illegal oil trade has been going with the connivance of the Bazani leadership in the, the Iraqi Kurds there. Now, the situation in, you know, in Turkey, of course, the, the Turkish Kurds are in a serious war with, with Erdogan, and Erdogan has been, has carried out some terrible attacks and, and killings in um, 
in that in the Kurdish part of Turkey. In Syria, it's quite different because you know even though they've got those links with Turkey, the Syrian Kurds are seen as a, a huge threat by Erdogan, and they've had a strategic alliance with the with Damascus with the, the government of Bashar al-Assad since the beginning of the conflict in Syria. So, although they want some form of autonomy they have always maintained to Damascus that they remain Syrians, they want to be part of the Syrian state. So on that basis the Syrian army has funded the Syrian Kurds and including the coalition of tribal Arab peoples in the northeast that have got together with, with the YPG, the Syrian Kurdish militia to fight the terrorist groups there. But they're being a bit of the meat in the sandwich with Turkey and, and ISIS there. So this is one of the dilemmas for Washington because of course Washington doesn't have exactly the same agenda as Turkey in these sorts of affairs. Washington has been trying to use the Kurds as a wedge against Baghdad and also against Damascus whereas Ankara, uh, Erdogan sees uh, all of them as terrorists and, and uh, is engaged in a war against them. So on the one hand Washington has made some sort of weak overtures or let's say sort of lukewarm measures of support to the Syrian Kurds, but there's been a much stronger stronger relationship between Damascus and the Syrian Kurds, and you see that now because of the cooperation between the Syrian army and, and the YPG in the north of Syria, quite openly working together, and the YPG has openly said that we want to remain part of a unified Syria. In other words, the ambitions of the Syrian Kurds is not exactly the same as the Iraqi Kurds there, despite their affinity with that whole that whole project. They're looking for some form of autonomy and Bashar al-Assad has clearly promised them some form, some form of autonomy in, in future Syria. And ISIS and the other terrorist groups are in Syria. What's in it for them now? The ceasefire that kicked in last weekend and it has some impact. It's, there's still fighting going on because the, the, the terms of the ceasefire drafted by Russia and the US, which have been accepted by the Syrian government, exclude all of the UN-listed international terrorist groups, and they're mainly ISIS and Jabhat al-Nusra, the official al-Qaeda. But of course, the official al-Qaeda, Jabhat al-Nusra, has been fighting with two major Islamist Syrian coalition in, in recent years, the Army of Islam and Arar al-Sham. And clearly they, they've got the same objectives, basically. So the Syrians... The Syrian army and the Russians don't make any difference between Ar al-Sham, the army of Islam, and Jabhat al-Nusra, whereas the Saudis are trying to make out there's a difference, the US is trying to make out there's a difference. They're the biggest forces there, and that's why, substantially, the war is still going on during the ceasefire. But that doesn't mean it's of no import at all, because there are a number of other things going on. One is that these groups that are collaborating with Damascus, the SDF and the YPG, are considered by Damascus and Russia opposition groups, but opposition in the sense that they're not anti-Syrian. So there's the possibility of, of them taking advantage of that, but really there isn't any practical conflict with Damascus, so the ceasefire has not to do with, with Damascus there. Uh, in the middle, you've got some parts of the terrorist groups, Jabhat al-Nusra coalition, led coalitions, that want to take advantage of the ceasefire because they're weak. They're being hammered by the Syrian army, basically, and they want breathing space to get resupplied, for example, and Turkey's indeed doing that in the north to a certain extent while they're losing territory in the north there. And on the other side, you have got some other small groups that are trying to reposition themselves because the US has kept funding a lot of small groups. They kept collecting.
collapsing into ISIS and into Jabhat al-Nusra. That's very clear. And taking their weapons across. But some of the small groups, when they're about to collapse and when they're about to be annihilated by the Syrian army, have taken advantage of the process of what's called Musallaha reconciliation in, in Syria to try and the Syrian expression is regularise their legal situation. It means it's a, it's a type of surrender where they, if they haven't got blood on their hands, they'll find a way to get a type of amnesty and, and, and return to some sort of normal life there. Well, for example, after the ceasefire, a group of 250, half of them from one village in the south of Syria, did precisely that. They surrendered and they're going through a legal, legal process at the moment. There is some actual real effect of the ceasefire going on, even though the major armed group you know, remain considered as terrorist groups by Syria and Iran and Russia and the US is being sceptical and, and trying to salvage what military assets they have there to try and keep their foot on the ground there, basically keep their military presence in at least eastern Syria. So how long is this truce supposed to last? You know, there have been violations reported already, but as I say, there's also some achievements to a certain extent, but uh, what the achievements are depends on the side you're looking at. I think there was an initial two-week period set down, but they can renew it if there's some sort of standing agreement. The problem is all sides are fairly sceptical because the, the major fighting's coming from the groups that are designated internationally as terrorist groups, the Jabhat al-Nusra coalition and ISIS, basically. On the one hand, there's ceasefire. It's affecting some parts, for example, of the south of Syria and the, the northeast countryside of Damascus. But in the north where Turkey has redoubled its efforts really to try and salvage some of its assets and in the east, the northeast, the, that the war is still going on really unaffected basically. One recent article said that it may be now that the Syrian army is going to redeploy its forces to those areas. So in other words, you know, there had been an emphasis by the Syrian army on the populated areas, understandably, that they they want to secure the, the big towns and cities in Syria first before going after ISIS in the eastern desert. Even though you know, there's been fighting going on in Deir ez-Zor and in the northeast in, in Haska for, for quite a long time, but you know, Raqqa has been bombed, but it hasn't, there hasn't been a, a ground invasion of Raqqa as yet. There may be a redeployment over to that part of Syria as a result of some of the achievements there. So the, the ceasefire is a partial thing that applies to certain groups and it may have some impact in certain areas but it's never been contemplated that ISIS or Jabhat al-Nusra would be included in uh, in the ceasefire so the war is going on to that extent. And when you think of how many nations are represented in this war you've got the US, you've got NATO, you've got Israel, you've got Australia, you've got all the, the fighters for IS Canada. or Canada, all the fighters from for ISIS and others coming from just about every country in the world. And then you've got Russia, Iran, Hezbollah, just for one country. Yeah, it's an extraordinary proxy war. The Syrians have said for a long time there's over 80 different countries represented there when you take into account where the actual fighters are coming from. But they've recruited Syrians too. Some of the fighters are inexperienced young people who are paid money. One interesting feature of this war is that the Syrian soldiers' salaries are significantly less, well less than half, often a third of the basic salary that the Saudis and the Turks are giving to the mercenaries that have come from overseas, which is extraordinary. You don't have any, uh, any other sort of revolutionary war or in that sort of way where the insurgents are, are getting paid more than the regular army. 
it shows the topsy-turvy nature of what's gone on there. But some of them are inexperienced. There's been a big drug trade, by the way. Uh, there's a drug called Captagon, which has been exported into Syria by the Saudis mainly, often through Jordan, to try and bolster up the nerves of young, inexperienced men from other countries to go, you know, to, to go and face fire, basically, and in many cases get killed. There are small groups of them from Chechnya and Afghanistan who have have battle experience so that's um that of course makes it makes it more dangerous but there's a lot of inexperienced jihadis coming in from europe and other parts of the world the death toll must be astronomical after all those no five really years knows. yeah no yep. one really knows exactly what the toll is i mean there's an estimate that perhaps 300,000 have died the refugees they say there's over three million outside the country but double that inside the country and as I said, most of those refugees, I've seen it myself, I've been to Sweden and Latakia and Damascus and you see people have come in from other parts of the country, including the families of some of the, the people who've been recruited. The locals hear them on their phone talking to their, talking to their families. But they're, they're seeking refuge with the army-controlled areas. So within Syria, they're seeking refuge with the government and the government keeps providing services to the extent that it can. But remember, you've also, there's an international campaign of sanctions against Syria since 2012, which means that there's huge shortages in the country because of the war, but also because of the sanctions. They compound on each other. The prices of things are sky high and incomes are extremely low. So there's tremendous shortages and problems with heating and cooling in a, in a country with extremes. So that's a real sleeper in the sense that if these NATO and Gulf monarchy uh, countries keep that pressure up, they're going to be able to keep killing people. They've failed really in the attempt to overthrow the government in Damascus, but they can still keep pressure on and keep killing people. And you remember with Iraq back in the 90s, there were sanctions between the two wars on Iraq in, in the 90s, and it was said that half a million children died as a result of the sanctions over a whole decade. That's unfortunately the sort of scenario we're looking at with Syria now if these sanctions are maintained. And there was only a really a strong campaign against the sanctions on Iraq. Uh, at the very end of that period and before the second invasion of Iraq happened, a lot of groups came on board to oppose the sanctions in the 2000s. But by then, they'd done a huge amount of damage. And people have written about it. We know what the impact of these sanctions are, but it's really being kept under wraps. There's not much publicity given to it yet. But uh, Iraq was... A very strikingly parallel situation. The, the humanitarian impact on Syria, which Western countries have bleated about so much, they're contributing to, of course, principally by supporting the armed groups and by also maintaining this regime of sanctions but under which Syrian people have, have tremendous shortages. Fortunately, there's some very strong social networks, so things keep functioning in Syria. You know, the schools are functioning, the government subsidises bread, there's certain basic services that keep going, there's free health services, but there's tremendous shortages in the hospitals, there's tremendous shortages, you know, in terms of power blackouts and uh, all of those sorts of things. So the sanctions are really uh, an unseen humanitarian disaster brewing in Syria, and I think um, people should be aware of that. And that was Dr Tim Anderson speaking about Syria and in particular his new book The Dirty War on Syria it's an e-book and it can be got I suppose the word obtained by going into the web to the web page try global research and you should be able to purchase it through that avenue and just to clarify the meeting on Monday 
at the Grand Hyatt Hotel. It's 123 Collins Street and it's 6.30, not 5.30. 6.30 at the Grand Hyatt Hotel to give a welcome to Lieutenant General Benny Grants, the head of the, or the recently retired head of the Israeli, as they say, defence force, but they say occupation, more like an occupation force. And next Tuesday, there won't be the normal Tuesday home time. It is International Women's Day. I'll be taking part in the program, but other women will also be part of it. So I will probably see you as a regular Tuesday home time in two weeks' time. But stay tuned for Dunbar Law coming up in about two minutes' time. Bye for now.